Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, the place where we dive deep into the minds of incredibly talented and creative individuals and try to unravel the mysteries behind their inspirations. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs, and joining me on this fantastic journey is our co-host of True Fiction, the uncanny Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? Going well. Looking forward to this one. I am too. I'm uh, really excited about this. As well, I understand why you are. We are going to be talking to Alan Ray. Alan is a writer, and he has his new book is out right now. The book is called The When Nightmares Come to Town, The Stranger in the Shadows. And it also has a very interesting note on it, book one. So I want to talk about that later, but we just want to welcome Alan Ray to the show tonight. Welcome, Alan. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me, Pat. Norbert, good to see you. Appreciate you bringing me on to the podcast this evening. We're happy to have you. It's an awesome book. I actually read it. It's a middle grade book and it's very well written. Even if you just read the first page of it, you already know that this is going to be a quality book. It really reminds me of almost like the Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's got that kind of feel to it. And I really dig that. Yeah. You're not the first person that has has mentioned that to me, but I think as the, as the story evolves, it's quite different, but you're the second person that said it reminds them of the Ray Bradbury book. This is, I, it's kind of a horror starter book for the young, younger set. No, you hit the nail right on the head. <laughs> growing up, I was a huge fan of R.L. Stein. I don't know any kid growing up in the late eighties, early nineties that wasn't right. And I consider his writing to be introduction to horror. And that's really what my goal was when I set out writing this book was, I think at some point I do have an adult horror novel in me, but my goal was to cut my teeth as a writer, this being my first book, and hopefully inspire some some of the younger generation to pick up a horror book and make it part of their genre and just expand that genre for them. One of the things that I was very intentional about when I was writing this was, hey, I want to have some jump scares in here, but I don't want them crawling into mom and dad's bed at night. And then ultimately, mom and dad aren't buying the second book, right? It is, it is an intro to horror. And I'm glad that you called that out because if I can inspire generations to you know, get into this genre, I would be thrilled. I've been in love with horror since I can ever remember. I just remember watching, even when I was young, and this was, I don't know, I wasn't that young. I was probably 13. And I'd watched horror before that. I'd watched, and I would mention the movies, but a lot of people would either not remember those movies or think if they did, they would say, well, those are really schlocky. But I remember watching the Dawn of the Dead a trailer on TV, and I could not be in the same room when that was on. I would run out of the room. But it was still a magnet to me. So I, I really loved that. And before we get too far, I, full disclosure, uh, Alan, I love the book, but I, I came across it in a different way than we usually come across our creatives. Our man Norbert was hired to do the cover of the book. And he did, he knocked it out of the park, did an amazing job. 
And then he did the back cover too. And then being a pal, I go out and buy the book to see what it looks like up close and personal. And it's a dynamite book. I like the story. I think, and a lot of adults will read a book before they let their kids read it. And I think that's awesome because I think they would really enjoy this book too. I did. Let me unpack that really quickly. So Norbert did a phenomenal job. The cover work looks amazing. And I thank him for being so gracious with his time because Norbert, how many fonts did we go through on that front cover? 20. I looked over, looked at over a thousand though. Yeah. Yeah. That, he, he was great about it. We went back and forth several times and I'm thankful that you allowed me to insert myself creatively in that process. You put a great cover together, back, front, spine. The entire book looks phenomenal. I will say this. One of the things that when you're a creative and you're working with another creative, and especially this is your first book, part of my job is to make you feel good about what the end product is. And if you're not happy with it, then it's going to detract from what, what you want. The whole putting it out is it's going to detract from that. You want somebody to feel great about it because you're, as an, a first-time author, you want to be excited about this thing. And I always try to keep that in mind. This is a big deal. And I will say this from the graphic design part of it. I'm okay at that, but my passion lies within the painting and the creation of the cover. So I don't, I didn't take, I was just, Hey, let's get it to a solution that works for people. And that's all I really cared about at, at the end. And you gave me enough creative latitude on the paintings that I was thrilled. Yeah. I don't know. I can tell you my, my first thought when we initially met and I learned that it was on canvas first before you actually moved it to digital, not knowing anything as a first time author, I was like, is this how it actually is supposed to go? And I just couldn't envision it any other way at this point. It just, the canvas brings it to life and it just looks so phenomenal. So I'm thankful for you and thankful for you letting me lean in there and be a part of that process. I will say this. I think that one of the things that Pat and I have talked about, we went to a convention not too long ago. There's a lot of authors that are put, they don't, they, I don't think they value the covers because there's a lot of AI stuff going on. And I understand some people can't afford it. And some people have some really bad covers and really just thrown together. And as Pat was said something, he goes, that cover is, it, it, it's not good enough for me to want to pick up the book. And I think that pe authors, sometimes they don't realize that if you don't care enough about your cover, people won't pick it up or they'll pick it up and put it right back down. I, it goes back to the old adage, right? Don't judge a book by its cover, but no, right. ultimately... Everybody judges a book by its cover because you got to get someone to pick it up off the shelf. So it, it turned out phenomenal. And Pat, just going back to the second part of your your comment around adults read it first and they're going to read it and ultimately they, they may enjoy it as well. And I was intentional in that choice too when writing. I didn't try to write down to my audience. I did try to choose words that were not above their reading level, right? Because I, I want it to be middle grade and available for seven through 13 to enjoy the book. But I didn't want to write down to them. I wanted them to be able to pick it up and really immerse themselves in the story. And I found out very quickly with my writing style, it would have been really tough for me to write down. And I hope adults pick it up and I hope they enjoy the story. 
and ultimately pass it along to the kiddos. But that was a stylistic choice when I was writing the book. So when you come up with a story like this, what is your first idea? Because you was talking about writing down or write, not trying to write down. Do you write something because you want to make a story that makes you to satisfy you first? Or do you think about, I want to write something that my kids will like? How do you think about, what's your mindset going into putting together a story? Yeah, I think that's evolved throughout the book. And I think if you read it with intention, you'll see my writing evolve as we get deeper into the story. So my creative process is really just spark an idea, right? And after I get that idea, I will take my iPad out and I won't write. I'll actually take a stab at drawing the cover art just to pick out the antagonist. And you've seen my cover art, Norbert, so you know it's not great, but it allows me to, de to develop the villain of the story. And then I center the rest of the story around that and bring in the, bring in the heroic kids to find their way through. And through the writing process, I do spend, I'm more of a hammer it out and go back and fix things later. And I, I just want the creativity to flow. So as I was writing, I started to become more intentional about developing characters in the book. Ultimately, the story is about an unlikely group of friends that have to face this centuries-old stranger that controls shadows. And I don't write with the intention to teach a lesson. I want the kids to immerse themselves and have a great time reading it. But ultimately, I think there are some lessons that you find in the book, which is you have to overcome fear and you can't let that fear control you. Otherwise, it won't, you, know, you won't get the outcome that you're looking for. So I don't know if many of the middle graders will take away from that and be like, oh, I shouldn't be afraid anymore. But developing that in the plot was important to me. And then developing characters and watching them grow throughout the story. Tommy is a very scared little boy at the beginning of the story. And I think he grows throughout to overcome some of his fears. I, I try to be pretty intentional with that. We saw that this was book one, and I was wondering, how far out do we go? And you don't have to tell us. I just want, I'm, I'm just thinking Harry Potter right now. We follow this kid from just really young to his teenage years. And then there was a little bit of, about his adult years as well, but for his kids, <laughs> his kids. Yeah, exactly. I don't want you to give anything away, but I'm really interested to see where this goes. Is it over a certain amount of time or is it even longer? It's funny you ask that question because I'm about 8,000 words into the second book. And the second book is called The Ghost Beneath the Lake. And it's a completely different story. Keeping with my inspiration that I found in Goosebumps, I don't see myself creating a trilogy or an, it's more of an anthology. However, I will say I did find a character, really two characters that I really enjoyed writing. And Silas the Unusual is going to make a reappearance in the third book. So I'm really struggling because I want to write him right now because I really enjoy writing him and Wendell. But yeah, I think some of the characters are going to make reappearances. But if I can equate it to anything, the Simpsons never got older and they've been on the air for over 20 years. <laughs> right. So some of the characters may reappear 
and may have future growth, but ultimately it's more of an anthology versus a series. Yeah, absolutely. Now we know that R.L. Stein was a, a big influence for this. What other things influenced this the writing? I'm a pretty simplistic guy when it comes to who I enjoy reading. I can pick up any Stephen King book and reread it over and over. I just love their style and I will toss in other authors just to get stylistic, you know, changes like, ah, I really like how they, they drew that scene out and I like their choices on how they unveiled the plot and, and. But I've been a massive Stephen King fan since I was young. You mentioned Dawn of the Dead. I think the first horror movie that I really watched was the originally made-for-TV It. And that scared uh, the bejesus out of me as a kid. The new version is much more scary. So if that's a kid's first movie now, they're going to have nightmares. But yeah, I like I said, I think I do have an adult novel in me from a horror genre standpoint. But I want to sharpen the blade a little bit more before I jump into that undertaking. You, you talk about R.L. Stein. That man still at, I think he's close to 80 at this point, and he's still writing 2,000 words a day. And when he was writing the original Goosebump series, he was putting out almost a completed book every six weeks. I don't have that in me. <laughs> I it just, I can't sit and write like that. The mood has to really strike me to do it. But I will say, I do have a nine-year-old editor here who keeps me under a pretty tight deadline for when my next chapter is going to be out. You said something interesting, like you have to be in the mood, but also there's got to be times when you're writing where you're just like, because there's times when I, I don't really feel like doing it, but I got a hammer. Do you find yourself better to push away from it and then get up early or do something different and then come to it? Or do you find sometimes you just got to hammer through those times when you don't really feel like doing it? Yeah, I think for me, I will put a target up. So the software that I use to write has a project target. So I'll give myself a deadline and it'll tell me how many words I need to write a day to get to that deadline. So I'm pretty I'm pretty intentional about making sure I'm hitting my daily quota on words. But for the days that I don't feel like writing, I find that if I force myself through the first couple hundred words, it gets me back in the mood. And if I hit a point in the plot where I'm like, oh, this is really exciting. I want to move. I want to keep moving this along. I'll just, I'll keep going. But yeah, if I'm not in the mood, I, I try to hammer out first couple hundred words and it usually pops me back into that mindset, but I can tell when I get tired and when I'm writing and I just have to call it, I don't force, I don't force through it because ultimately it's just going to damage the plot and the story, or I'm going to have to go back and delete what I wrote and rework it. That's never fun. How is your writing process? So do you write everything and then do you edit or do you edit as you go? Yeah, I, I don't edit as I go. I have a phenomenal editor, Julie Overpeck. She just did an outstanding job through the editing process. The only thing that I will go back and edit before I send the manuscript over is I'll go back and reread and search for plot plot holes. 
I, I find that helps get us through at least the first phase of editing much quicker. And just like Norbert elevated this book with the artistic edition on the cover and the back, Julie did the same thing. And I think that for writers that are new, don't skip on the editing piece. Find an editor that is very good at what they do because it's not just looking at where the commas go and misspelling and word choices. It's really the editor helps elevate the writing. And this may work better here from a word choice standpoint, or let's reframe this paragraph. And she elevated my writing. So phenomenal editor to work with. I look forward to working with her and Norbert on the upcoming books in the future here. But yeah, I, I don't edit as I write. It takes away from my creative flow. I just hammer it out. Wow. That's, that's I always like to look for the analogies in creative process across disciplines. And one of the things that I think about is if I'm looking at a work or a project too long, every once in a while I get this feeling that I I'm losing perspective and I don't know whether I'm doing something good or I'm doing something bad. I just, I get lost. I heard what it was Steven Soderbergh, I think, talk about that. He just he was like talking about a movie. Sometimes he says he's, it feels like you're looking at a mural from an inch away. You just lose perspective. And I wondered when you're living with a book, which is in a story and telling a story, whether there's times where you just go, crap, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. You know what I mean? It, it, <laughs> do you find that sometimes it, that process for me lasts 20 minutes and it's gone. And sometimes it's a day or two and, or sometimes it's a week, but do you have those kind of feelings or? issues or not? Yeah. I think the hardest part for me through this first book was the last couple of chapters without spoiling anything. I was pretty intentional on three of the last chapters that were, the kids are going to go their separate ways and they're going to find their own, their own learnings and fears in those three rooms. Right. But once I got to the climax, that's a very important part of the story. And then furthermore, more tying that in a bow with the ending. And I probably rewrote that ending probably four different, four different ways. Sometimes I get those blinders on and I get stuck. And it's just about walking away for a little bit, doing something else that takes your mind off of it. And then all of a sudden that flash happens and you're like, oh, I got to get in front of my computer because I got to write this down right now before I forget. So yeah, there's definitely times you hit those roadblocks and there's times where you just don't like where it artistically went, but it's just walking away and resetting for me is what needs to happen. And I will say having my audience live in this house, I run the chapters through my nine-year-old and he will tell me like, Hey, what about this? And early on in the book, he was really excited about giving me ideas. And I think ultimately that's one of my favorite things that's come out of writing this book. If I didn't sell one copy, I don't worry too much about legacy, but when you think about it, by putting this out in the world, there's something for them to be proud of dad about. And it's created that legacy for them. And I knew that it was something special when my oldest son brought me a journal and said, dad, I have four ideas for your next books. 
And he's writing them down and he comes and shares those with me. And I'm like, oh, that's actually a really good idea, buddy. We're going to, we'll put a pin in that one because I have the next two books that are on the docket, but I think we should come back to that. It, it's about finding inspiration in places where you normally wouldn't seek it out. And we now have a connection that we didn't share previously with writing. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but. No, that's what we're looking for. That's great. I, I've. The one other thing that the theme that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and, and that is influences. You was talking about R.L. Stein and you was talking about Stephen King. And one of the things that I think about, like I heard, was it Michael Crichton was talking about one time where he's, I don't really read anybody else's novels anymore. I just read, what was it? He was research abstracts and that sort of stuff. Of course, mm. you know, he was really smart guy but i was thinking about it from the idea of and i ask musicians we we talk to different people and this is the idea of are you actively consuming stuff as you're writing do you read an rl stein while you're writing or do you read a stephen king i'm to the point now i'm there's a certain amount of who I am is just baked in the cake and I could look and try to copy somebody. And by the time it goes through my filter, it's something else. So it really doesn't matter anymore for me, but I know some people are very concerned about that contamination of other influences and they're afraid of it. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Yeah. I don't think I've, I don't shy away from, from reading while I'm writing. I, I think it it just keeps me in that creative mindset. I, I don't worry about cross-contamination because there's a lot going on up here. But I will say, I don't know if I've actually picked up a physical paperback and read a physical paperback in the last year. I just haven't had time. So it's usually audiobooks on my way to work. And I find with the audiobooks, it's a way for me to listen and escape into that world. But it doesn't allow me to visually see the writing, right? And so I'm just listening to a story. I'm not listening or looking for structure. So it's left brain versus right brain. I think I'm listening to escape and not think about my book and not think about work and everything that we have going on. So I don't worry about cross-contamination. And it's been a while since I actually picked up an R.L. Stein book and, and read one. I'd say probably... I don't know, maybe two years ago, reading it to the kids, but it's, I don't worry about that too much through the process. Are you in your, the stuff that you like to listen to now, is it more in the horror genre or other genres? Yeah. Um, it's funny. My wife will tell people, we just had an event this past Sunday where we were out selling copies of the book here locally. And people were asking, oh, Halloween's over, right? That's usually the comment that you get. My wife says, it's Halloween year round in our house. He falls asleep to horror movies. And, and it's true, right? If I had to pick a genre that I consistently would put on, either whether it's a show, a movie, or audiobook, or pickup, it's usually horror. It's just, for some reason, that just, that genre speaks to me. And I enjoy just the fantasy and the, the unrealistic things that we know can't happen in real life, but it's a way to just completely escape from real world versus literary fiction where there's some heavy stuff in literary fiction that can really, you know, 
bring you down sometimes. It can lift you up as well. But when I read or listen to audio books, it's to escape and just be in my own thoughts with the story that's being told. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I listen to horror all the time. I'm listening to a John Langan book right now, which is The Wide Carnivorous Sky, a bunch of his short stories. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. They watch a lot of schlock horror and they don't get that the writing is just so good and it's so expressive. And it's very, I just think it's comedies never win Oscars and horror books don't usually win any awards unless it's in a horror award area. That's my two cents on that. I did want to ask, I think it's awesome that you do have your nine-year-old. Is, is, he's like right there with you. I think that's amazing. Did any of any of your children's, basically any of their personalities end up in the book? <laughs> He's going to listen to this, but <laughs> yes, my oldest, he's still, he's still scared sometimes. When I was writing Tommy, I used a lot of him in Tommy, right? So yeah, they make their way in through the book. I will say one of the things that I think is really cool is there's a ton of Easter eggs in the book. And I'll hold those pretty close to the vest. If people can figure them out, that's awesome. But most of them are nods to my family uh, and they make their way into my writing quite a bit. I'll share one with you. And it's one of those ones that you'll no one will ever figure out unless I tell them. But <laughs> the actual price of the paperback is $11.89. And that is the month and year of my wife. That's my wife's birthday. That was a specific choice just to throw another Easter egg in right at the back of the cover. That's awesome. What's the, the key difference between writing a spooky for adults compared to a kid? I know you're writing for kids right now, but I'm just wondering, how do you know the line? Yeah, I would say the very clear line between middle grade, you have middle grade fiction, young adult fiction, and then adult. The clear line between middle grade and young adult fiction is no cursing can't be in the book at all not even a small little innocent curse word and there can't be any type of sexualization inside oh, yeah. of the books right you keep all that stuff for the young adults and the adults that's usually the line and it's really funny so i was writing on sunday and i got done and I went to do some some things around the house and I popped my earbuds in and I was listening to my audiobook that I'm listening to now, which is Black River Orchard by Chuck Windig. It's phenomenal, by the way. But coming straight from writing my book and then popping that in and listening to it, you will know where the line is because it's pretty clear when you jump up to the adult horror genre. And I almost, I paused for a second. I was like, oh, they just cursed. Oh, that's pretty graphic. So it, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to see. And, and for me, it hasn't been it hasn't been difficult to make sure that I don't cross that line once I get into the story. I've always wondered about death because I think death is a rough subject when you have middle grade. And I, some of it, I think you could probably get by with some of it if it's far enough removed. But I think that's something that you have to be careful with. What do you think about that? Yeah. I feel like you have started to read the second book already. <laughs> so that's a challenge that I'm having right now. The Ghost Beneath the Lake. Well, 
how do you become a ghost? You can't be part of the living world any longer. So I will say that has been a challenge because it, it is going to be in the book, but you have to be really tactful in how you present it to your audience, right? There's going to be a lot of assum assumptions. Um, kids know where ghosts come from, right? It's word choices. It's how you develop it within the plot. But yeah, death is another one of those lines that you really can't cross. I think if it's happened in the past and the death is known versus having it part of the story where a death happens is probably that distinction that I would draw, at least for my writing process. That's where I'm sitting with it right now is there's not going to be actual death in the book, but we all know that a death had to have occurred in order right. to get to this place. One of the things I was thinking about is we're just having this conversation is that Pat and I have talked about this before, about putting limits on your design. And, and sometimes putting limits on your design makes you more creative within that framework, as opposed to saying you create anything. And then sometimes people just lock up and don't go anywhere. And by having some of these limits, I think if it's used well, it will actually make you a better writer because you're not it's like working blue. The comedians that work blue is almost like a gimmick. You're going to get a laugh. You say a certain set words in a certain way. But this, you're, you don't have things to fall back on. You have to deliver a story that, that appeals to people. I don't know if you've thought of it in quite like those terms, because in a way, I feel like this is excellent preparation for whatever you want to do, whether it's more middle grade or young adult or adult work. Yeah. I I haven't thought about it in that way, right, Norbert? But I think it makes a lot of sense. I would equate it to getting outside of your comfort zone. And my comfort zone would be just to write it the way that I initially thought of it when it gets hammered out on the keyboard. In The Stranger in the Shadows, there is a scene in there that I did have to go back into that box and rework it because I thought it was going to be a little bit too scary for the kids. And the way I wrote it the first time, I was in love with it. And I was like, this is phenomenal. But then I went back and reread it. And I said, this is probably getting close to the point where it might be a little bit too over that line. And it's for those that haven't read the book, spoiler alert, it's the scene where Silas is in the bedroom and he's forcing the shadows into Tommy's parents and taking over them. That scene was a little bit more graphic with how they reacted with the initial when the, when the shadows were approaching. So I had to go back and rework that. And it was uncomfortable for me because I loved it and I had to go back and rework it. But ultimately, I think that chapter turned out exactly the way it should have. And it was to what you said. I had to work within a certain box and it forced me to be a better writer in that moment. I, I did want to ask, and, and we're getting really close on time. I don't want to keep you too late. I always see anything we read, and this is the basis for our name, True Fiction, because when you're writing fiction, there's some truth in it, but inevitably it's fiction, right? Pittsburgh, is that a town that you actually know, or is it something that was created? Is it a hodgepodge of like your childhood home? Because it's the town itself is, I'm not saying it's a character, but it's definitely a very important part. Yeah, 
I'm sitting in Pittsburgh, North Carolina right now. It is the town that that we live and there's a lot of inspiration. It's a little bit smaller. It is growing massively. So the small town feel won't be here much longer, but it still has the old town main street. You mentioned Pat in that opening chapter, that's downtown Pittsburgh, right? I didn't have to do much creative writing there because it's pretty true to how it is here in, in Pittsburgh. I think that's one of the things that when I was out and about selling books on Sunday, when people saw that it it said Pittsburgh, they're like, oh, I have to have it if it's set here in Pittsburgh. And when I was writing, that wasn't even a, a hook that I was trying to set right. to get people to get excited and buy it. But then I realized, hey, that's that's pretty neat. Like, it is it is a, a book about Pittsburgh that not many people know about Pittsburgh, North Carolina. But yeah, that's it's an actual place. I'm sitting in it right now. That's awesome. That is really cool. I like that. I got one final question, and that's when you're done with your first book and it's out the door, do you want to take a break from it? Or do you are you ready to rush right back into the other thing. One of the things I like to do personally is when I get done with something, just take a day or so and do and decompress. And then I inevitably a week or so later, like to revisit the work and pick see if I can pick it apart. But I didn't know it, writing's a little different, whether you're just, you're ready to go into the next thing or you want to take a break from it or how does that work? Yeah, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So when I first hit that final period on the on the last page of the book, I probably went back and reread it three or four times just to double check for plots, to plot holes, and to make sure it was a final product that I'd be proud of. But once it's through the editorial process, I don't go back and reread it, right? I'm, the, the product is done. I'm done with that creative space, and it's time for me to move to the next one. I will say there's a lot of things that you don't know as a first-time author that you learn very quickly. And all the things that go into publishing the book outside of the illustration and the editing and the actual writing, buying the ISBN number, buying your barcodes, copywriting the material. And then when everything launches, now what do you do? So I've been spending a lot of time on marketing and creating marketing plans through social media. I think, Pat, you mentioned AI earlier, or maybe that Norbert, I think you mentioned it when we were talking about illustration, but I use that in a lot of my creative marketing on Instagram and TikTok. But I'll be honest, I do not enjoy that part of the creative process. (laughs) I have a newfound respect for the actual social media creators that are day in and day out pushing content out because I absolutely hit a wall with marketing. I was putting a a new post up every day. And that is the part of the process that I will not miss as I move on to the next book and start having to market for that one. (laughs) But yeah, I tend to be done. When we were through editing, I just, I I try to forgive the pun, but I move on to the next chapter. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that. It's what I call a necessary evil, but it's got to be done, the marketing. Alan, it's been a blast talking to you tonight. This has been uh, really great. I'm um, a fan, so it's pretty cool getting to talk to you about this and uh, and getting a little insight in into what's going on in your head. Uh, really appreciate it. Now, 
I know this is on Amazon. You can uh, look up Alan Ray. It's A-L-A-N-W-R-A-Y, Alan Ray. And you can uh, go and pick this book up for, what is it, $11.98? $11.98 for the paperback. There you go. And I think Amazon actually has the ebook discounted now to $8.49. Originally, it was at $9.99. You can also pick it up at Barnes & Noble if you have Nook, and that's your preferred platform. And I believe the ebook is now available in the Apple Store. And coming here in the next, probably by the first week of December, the audiobook of the, will be available on Audible as well. That's another part of the process that I've had to get pretty familiar with pretty quickly. Pat, you're the expert on audio editing, but I've had to learn on my own. So it's been a, it's been a process. <laughs> so... Yeah, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Audible soon to come. Oh, very cool. I am super fascinated with the Audible stuff and I I think it's the choice of the the reader is just a mystery to me a lot of times. So I'm actually I'll probably grab the Audible book too because I love I love listening to books as well. So that's awesome. Did you uh, read the book uh, on um, the audio? Did you re record it, Alan, or did you have someone else do that? Yeah, I'm doing it myself. Oh, um, you are awesome. Yeah, another choice in this first book. I want the first one to be read by me. I think in the future, I'm going to outsource the Audible as well. But what I really think is fun about doing the audio recording for this one is I get to give the characters life. I wrote the characters. I know how they sound up here. So I do my best to have them sound that way as they come through into the audio. It's been a, it's been another fun learning process, but it's it's fun to do this first one. But I think going <laughs> forward, that one's going to get outsourced for sure. Look, I look into the future and I keep thinking your son has a child and he can listen to his grandfather read this book to him. I think that is awesome. I think there's a lot of perks in having read the book on Audible. So Pat, I, I that. Didn't even cross my mind. And thinking about that, that gives me, that gives me chills. So that's <laughs> something to think about. That's thanks for bringing that up. That's a, that's pretty cool for a grandchild to be able to do that. Alan, we're not going to keep any later. I really appreciate it. It's been a blast talking tonight. Definitely want to come back on the show if you would. When the second book comes out, we'll talk about that too. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I'd love to come back. And thank you both for having me. I think this has been fun for me to get to talk about my creative process. And I really appreciate you both making me a part of the show. Oh, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Alan. Have a great night. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late